Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Miriam Shaw-Ojeda. She's a fellow of policy and innovation with the Ohio Pharmacists Association, a graduate from the University of Cedarville, Go Yellow Jackets, and has the unique experience of actually growing up in New Delhi, India. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shaw Ojeda. Eric, thanks for having me here today. Yeah, hey, thanks for doing this. Um, we're kind of going to discuss a little bit different topic this time, kind of more some of the logistics and almost infrastructure, if you will, of how a state kind of rolls out the a vaccine issue uh, initiative like the COVID vaccine. Obviously, you and me are both from Ohio. Our governor has been really Switzerland as far as it comes to with politics and being very neutral and professional with this and following some of the data. So I think this is why we're kind of like a good target state to focus on because politics really didn't get played here the way it did in some other states, whether it be you know left or right. We pretty much stayed neutral, kind of to Ohio's tradition, if you will. So you've been in the loop with the governor's office and kind of talking the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, which is obviously super important, but also kind of mercurial with how the topic you know, moves, changes, and things like that. So for listeners, we're recording this on April 28th. It'll obviously come out later. So if things change, uh, we'll still release this, but you know, just keep that in mind of 428 is when we're recording this. So let's start with this. Aside from nursing homes, which we all knew kind of needed priority due to the death rates and the mortality we were seeing with them, how was it decided to deploy these vaccines? Sure. And you know, Eric, before I begin, I just uh, want to say a quick thank you to our profession. Thank you to all the pharmacists, whether you're listening or listening wherever, you're, wherever you are at the moment. So many of you stepped up to the challenge of vaccinating. That meant staying late in the pharmacy, that meant vaccinating past the hours due to you. Some of you came out of retirement. A lot of students gave up time that they should have been studying or just being a student out there to vaccinate. So being a pharmacist and working with the planning side of vaccines, I just want to say a big thank you to the profession. We have really done a true labor labor of love for the people that we serve. So after I did that, let me answer your question. <laughs> so aside from nursing homes, basically the state decided to follow federal guidance. So a lot of what you saw from phase 1A, 1B, 1C, and so on and so forth, we're following some of the mandates that were set out from the state. And the state had used several other uh, task forces and groups of experts to decide who would come next. Now, within some of those allocations, the governor was able to choose certain populations. So for example, phase 1B included healthcare providers such as pharmacists. That was not the case initially. As you can see, as we've seen the rollout happen, the state decided to basically just follow word for word what the federal guidance had for various phases and then moved forward based on feedback they received from teams working with the governor's office, so some of the people at the Department of Health, and also probably very important in this piece was the reporting aspect. So pharmacies and other locations, when they administered the vaccine, they were required to put in target population occupation codes. And looking at those codes helped the state decide, okay, we're done with our nursing homes, who's next? Okay, we're done with our 75 and above, who's next? And then incorporating teachers and incorporating other members of the community was part of that decision-making. So yeah, that was kind of, that seems to be what the strategy was from the state level. 
Yeah, and the one thing I think is kind of cool with that is pharmacies kind of inherently have a lot of this data built into what we do and how we report, whether it be some of the vaccine uh, reporting programs. In our state, that's Impact Sys, where you get all those kind of demographic data about like their age and everything like that. But I know I've seen where that does ask your race and ethnicity, whether you're black, white, uh, Pacific Islander, Hispanic, not Hispanic, so that you can get some of that data and kind of target those areas too. And how did they decide to open up the categories? Was it once we hit like a certain percentage of a population or it looks like, hey, we're trending that way and we're going to open up to the next level so that we don't have all of a sudden like a fall off where we have vaccine but no one to give it to? Like, how did they make that decision? So from what I know, obviously I was not at the table making those decisions, but yes. from what I know, they had they had several teams working with them, including a health equity team, teams that looked up the data from these codes for reporting purposes. And I believe... Um, as you said, it was probably as they reached a point where they decided, okay, we've done, I don't know, 60 to 80% of the population, let's move on to the next group. And, the, you know, additional to that is the fact that the governor wanted schools to open in person. And yeah. so therefore, he decided, let's add the teachers come February. And I think that was a very strategic move. So aside from the data that they were able to look at, they also looked at the time of the year and the needs of Ohioans across the state. Yeah, and things like that, like opening it up, and we've kind of mentioned a few of them now where pharmacists weren't included right away, but they kind of realized, hey, we need them if we want to roll this out, especially with the federal uh, partnership program with some of the bigger chains, that we need to include them so they can be protected and not go in there and spread it. And we need to include them so that you know they're going to be on the front lines, literally giving this to people as we start rolling out. We need to get them ahead of time so that everyone is protected and we're not have, they're not acting as vectors, which was one of the things early on I know I was worried about. And things like teachers, the same thing. We know kids don't get it as bad, but if a kid could spread it to a teacher, teacher goes out, well, now if you have so many teachers going out or they don't feel comfortable in the classroom, you're obviously not going to have school in person, which was a huge initiative that they really want to get back to. Is that the way you were seeing that? Absolutely, absolutely. And what one thing that I appreciated from the state was their willingness to listen to these populations. So, for example, with pharmacy, the Ohio Pharmacists Association, the association I work for, you know, we wanted to be the voice for independence and they listened and they said, okay, what is it that you need? We mentioned, we need to vaccinate the vaccinators. They need to be safe. They need to feel safe as they go out into the community. And and that seems to be something that the state gets an A plus on for their efforts. Yeah. I know for myself, when I did my first uh, vaccination rollout in a nursing home, it was, we had a few extra because that we knew that some people weren't getting it, but we had extra doses at that day that were there. And I ended up getting my first dose that day and I'm like, it was here in December and I'm going, I almost feel like I skipped the line because I'm not in any of the age groups or demographics <laughs> that fit. Uh, I am a pharmacist, obviously, but just I felt like I skipped the line. But then obviously, like you said, knowing that I was going to be in there and doing that, vaccinating the vaccinators is a, is a key step there. So we're not you know, acting as vectors with all of this. Uh, with regards to pharmacy, was there any specific way they were chosen or how, can you explain some of that process? Cause it seems like at least federally favoritism was played, but in Ohio it rolled out pretty quickly everywhere. Yes. And that's a fantastic question. The, the lobbyists or the, the person inside of me that likes to fight against injustice was definitely triggered back in December. <laughs> um, initially, obviously, as you know, the federal government decided to choose a couple of chain pharmacies to participate in phase 1A. And phase 1A was back then, it was for nursing homes and other entities like that taking care of long-term patients. And when that rolled out in December, those pharmacies were chosen, um, including at the state level, including here in Ohio. In fact, I, I got several phone calls from long-term care pharmacies saying, look, we have relationships with our nursing homes. 
we have built over decades sometimes. What am I supposed to do if my nursing home comes to me and says, I want you to vaccinate me, not another pharmacy that's designated by the federal government? So that initial that initial situation was rough, especially as you know they watched other pharmacies take on their patients and other pharmacies get some of that allocation. In fact, I think in the state, we only had one long-term care pharmacy that was not a large chain that was chosen. And so obviously for that pharmacy, it was great because they got that opportunity. But imagine the workload. Imagine what it did for their staff too. You know, these are humans trying to do the best of what they have. So initially, yeah, initially it was difficult. And then the state decided not only were they going to do that LTC route, they were going to reach out to major hospitals. And I remember watching Governor DeWine's press release where he taught World Press Conference, where he released a map of the hospitals across the state that would get the vaccine first. Again, very a very logical move because a lot of our healthcare providers are working in the hospitals and are faced with multiple exposures to COVID that we didn't want them to be exposed. So that was great. Come January, however, our pharmacies were calling me nonstop and OPA and I'm sure other entities saying, hey, put us in coach. We're ready. In fact, most of us are either almost going to get vaccinated or we're scheduled. What's going on? And so, you know, the state was able to listen to some of those thoughts. And I remember, I think it was mid-January, I got the call saying we've picked I believe it was three pharmacies that will that are not related to chain pharmacies that will get the vaccine. And I it was I felt like I was Santa Claus on Christmas because I picked up the <laughs> phone and called them and I said, "Hey, are you ready? Are you ready to put on your running shoes and get going?" And they were like, "Oh my gosh, we were ready yesterday." So that started the process of some of the smaller chain pharmacies and independent pharmacies to be included in the storyline for vaccinations. Here's why that was important. If you look at Ohio, look at how it's built. We have several large urban communities, large swaths of population in our urban centers or in our capitals. So Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland. But then we have a large population in rural areas. So if you pick on certain pharmacies and just you know say, we're gonna prioritize these pharmacies, what do you do? You lose out on certain populations. You lose out on the rural community, say, if you pick a larger chain that's maybe more concentrated in our urban areas. So the governor's office made a very tactical move in January to say, you know what, we recognize our state has variable levels of reach with all pharmacies. We're going to include everybody in the game. And then over time, the, the piece that was the rate limiting factor was allocation. So that was out of the state's reach. The federal government was the one deciding where this, where these vaccines were going and Ohio got a limited number. So over time, as the vaccine allocation increased, more pharmacies were included in the mix. And then finally, I I forget the actual date that this happened, but the federal allocation opened up. So any pharmacy or pharmacy group that was contracted at the federal level got their allocation as well. So where we're sitting at today is the state has allocation, the federal government is giving allocation, and most pharmacies that want to be involved are involved. Yeah. And, you know, you hit on a few points there. One is just the access of it. I know. So obviously, listeners know, I live around Cleveland and work in Cleveland. And I had patients who were coming from Finley, or or, I'm sorry, coming from Youngstown. And then later on that day, they were driving to Finley. So they're going from one end over there by Pittsburgh and Youngstown, driving hour and a half or two to Cleveland, getting one, and then later in the day, driving to Finley to get the second one because of how hard it was to really find vaccines at a given point in time. So I think that states that 
well, one, our state isn't the biggest state, but it's of a modest size, but just how spread out we are and the different access issues. Because Youngstown isn't a small city, but it's definitely not big. But there's also lots of communities in between there that can have access issue access issues due to income, travel, uh, just simple things like roads, cars, physical access barriers, and things like that. And I think that that's huge. You hit on that. And we also saw, uh, I know a pharmacist who's our, now what our uh, vice president for Ohio Pharmacists Association, Logan Yoho, was kind of, you know, through social media, reaching out to the governor and being like, hey, you know, we're having issues trying to get everyone vaccinated here because there's so much like, hesitancy or resistance. Can we lower the age bracket? You know, can we can we go 10 years down? Can we go five years down? Like, what leeway do we have so we're not wasting doses? Because I can't find someone who's 65, but I have a 64-year-old who really wants it right now. Have you guys heard a lot of stories like that? And is that kind of one of the things that might have help push this rollout to eventually get to everybody probably a little bit sooner than we've seen in some other states? Oh my goodness, yes. Feedback from our pharmacies, feedback from other healthcare providers and, and locations that were providing vaccines, mainly health departments really, were crucial in helping the state see, okay, maybe we should shorten our timeline. Maybe we should open this up early. Um, you know, the other issue that we're seeing, and maybe I'll bring this up later in conversation, is the vaccine hesitancy. So there are certain there are certain parts of the state that are dealing with less interest more than other areas. Now, I think across the board in the state where we're seeing lower demands, but it started in some of our rural areas first. So I got calls from pharmacies saying, I'm running out of time with my vials. or I'm running out of time with the, with the injections that I have drawn up. What do I do? And versus in stark contrast, by the way, to people in some of these cities who were, who were calling up and saying, I need 100 more shots. Can you give me 500 to 1,000? I'm like, my goodness. And think about from the state level to make you, you have you, you get only one chance at saying this is stage 2A or 2B. And it applies to the whole entire state. Then you're hearing that this beautiful state of ours that has various variabilities in people and population and demographics, there are needs that are specific to a specific county. What do you do? So I appreciate the state's patience, really, with hearing some of the, the needs, but also that they were quick to answer and quick to modify some of their directions based on feedback. Yeah, and I think that's huge, too. I would call out there the, the boards of health for each county all across this nation have been overworked as much as anybody has during this pandemic. So they've obviously done an awesome job. And I know I've had people have success when I refer them to them to either find vaccine or help get questions answered or other things that I might not have had access or privilege to. And another thing that you kind of said there, too, is just giving how big some of our counties are population wise. They're very like, I think if I could be wrong, this nearly half of Ohio's population is in like three or four counties when you add it all up. And even within those counties, you're seeing stark differences where it's almost like a bullseye effect where all of the suburbs are getting more vaccinated because they have the resources to go find it. But then some of the inner city ones aren't because they don't have some of those same resources. And we've seen one thing that I really thought was cool was the governor in our state reached out in multiple languages to make sure that people understood kind of where to find it, had different outreach groups to different communities, whether it be Hispanic, African-American, rural, uh, other cultures, I'm sure I'm forgetting, to really reach out to them to say, hey, here's why we need to get vaccinated. And that's coming from somebody that if you look at the political end of it, might not be his bread and butter for who he was relying on for votes, but he still took care of that because he saw this as a true public health issue that affects everyone. If we don't stop it, amongst you know black and brown folks it's also not going to stop amongst white people and so it's one of those things that we he i really thought he did a good job of and even in one of his earlier press conferences someone kind of asked hey is this going to be available in spanish and he kind of stuttered and he said i didn't think about that but i'll make sure it is soon and i thought that was a really 
awesome thing to see a governor admit a fault and then own up to it and admit to he's going to fix it as soon as possible. Is that kind of what you guys have seen throughout this process? Absolutely. You know, and the thing about this, Eric, that I'm learning with being a new practitioner in the pharmacy world is we, we live in, in definites, you know, in, in the pharmacy world, everything has to be evidence-based. Everything has to be, <laughs> we love our rules and we follow them with great gusto. Um, but the thing that the pandemic has shown us is this is the wild, wild west of healthcare. We're <laughs> yeah. all figuring this out. We're all sitting here saying we, we know the data that we're getting, you know, how old is this data? Oh, it's six months old. Oh, it's three months old. Oh, fantastic. That would give me, you know, that would give me nightmares if, if you had told me this in, back in 2019. <laughs> but nowadays I'm like, oh, what's new? What's new? This is part of the pandemic. So I think the thing I've appreciated about the governor's office, the state department, their willingness to learn with their communities, their willingness to look at the data and say, okay, what we thought about last week with providing vaccine hesitancy information in English is probably not enough this week because we learned that we have certain populations that need it more than others or need their language to be used as they talk about the vaccine. So, you know, a point that you mentioned, and I'm going to go a little off, off uh, topic here, the social determinants of health. When we're talking, you mentioned access to a car, you, you, families with multiple generations, families where both parents are working so they can't take grandma to get her shot. The, those were major factors in some of the decision-making and continue to be an issue with the reach of the vaccine in a state like Ohio. And, and you know, we're one state, the other states are facing similar problems where it's not necessarily just vaccine hesitancy, but other determinants of health that are making it difficult for people to access a shot. Yeah, and with Ohio, the reason... There's always that saying is, as goes Ohio, goes the nation, just when you look at it from numerous levels because of how weird we are of having these really rural areas that aren't as rural as obviously maybe some parts of like Idaho or Montana, but still pretty rural. But then we also have some bigger cities like Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati. They're not New York big, but they're they're big enough. They're big cities. And so we kind of have this like weird mix where if you're seeing the problem in Ohio, you're definitely seeing it somewhere else. It's almost like a microcosm, if you will, just shrunk down, which I think is... I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but it's something that we have to deal with in our state. And I think that's why it's so reflective of the U.S. as a whole. And you know, when we see good leadership for things like that, it can be pointed to and say, okay, that might not work exactly, but here's a template, if you will. And that's why I think it's, it's kind of cool to be in Ohio this time, especially since we're seeing so many change come out of pharmacy with COVID, things like that. What were some of the big hurdles that came up? Obviously, besides vaccine hesitancy we talked about, and there were really discussions that caused us to change course. Was there anything that you can distinctly remember that there was a discussion or something came up and then all of a sudden you saw a shift in policy or in a movement when it comes to the COVID and the vaccine? Sure. I think one of the major conversations we had early on was the concern about vaccine storage. So a lot of our hospitals, our larger healthcare facilities, had capabilities to store the vaccine at very low temperatures. What we were seeing, though, is in our in some of our rural communities where the only access to healthcare was their local, sometimes independent pharmacy. How are we going to get the vaccine to them? What were we planning to do about allocation so that those populations were not left out? And the saving the saving grace in all of this was there was a vaccine back in January that people were hearing about, and it was the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And the thought was, oh, my goodness, this would be amazing because it doesn't require a deep freezer. It has a longer stability, longer shelf life. 
you know, pharmacies can definitely, any local pharmacy can store and use it. And so when that was brought to the attention of the governor's office, it was highly encouraged to have some of those vaccines allocated to our independents and our smaller chain pharmacies just because of that storage requirement. And they listened and they said, okay, well, let's let's consider how we can allocate these vaccines in a fair way, but also know that this will benefit our pharmacies. And in a matter of time, I saw the number of pharmacies that were allocated vaccine almost double and then triple um, to the point that most pharmacies that wanted a vaccine could could provide it to others. Uh, granted, granted, uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been under a little bit of turmoil in the last couple of weeks. But I remember that being a major, major move forward where pharmacies were saying, we finally got the shot. We can finally go ahead and vaccinate our people. I think that was that was a hurdle that we crossed back uh, probably late January, early February. Another one that we talked about recently was employer contracts. So we had a lot of our pharmacies reach out and say, you know, I have a small business here. They want to vaccinate their people, but they really want us to vaccinate them. And they want it to be quick, in and out. Their employees should be able to get a vaccine on X day. And so when the governor's office released a guidance saying you can use up to 25% of your allocation, we came back to them and said, look, that's great. What if a pharmacy gets 100 shots in one week? How are they going to give an employer group of 200 people 25 vaccines? Yeah, that's not practical. Uh, so the governor's office came back and said, "Okay, give us a sec." And a week later, they they changed that guidance and said, "Look, let us know if you need allocation." And just this past week, we were able to release a survey to all independent pharmacies saying, "Okay, let us know when you have an employment contract set up. How many exactly do you need?" And the governor's office will work and try their best to see if we can allocate, if they can allocate some of those vaccines to those sites. So here we are, obviously, some of those early phases were big, you know, everybody above the age of 75, everybody above the age of 65. But now the governor's office has realized we now have to get very specific. We have to say in X county, there's this one company that needs 200 shots. And that means 200 people vaccinated. Okay, let's do it. Let's get 200 people their shots. It's really like that high level view that kind of almost gets micromanaged down at this point to make sure we're hitting as targeted of groups as we can. Exactly. Exactly. We're at that point now where we need to start targeting very specific communities and say, look, your community is under vaccinated. What do we do about that? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. You know, I've also always thought it's kind of been one of those jobs with governor people always ask, what do they do? And I think now when you have somebody who's having to manage something like a absolute public health crisis like we have here, you're seeing day in and day out just how much time they're investing with this. And I'm, I'm sure everyone who's involved in that process gets about no sleep still to this day, even though we're well over a year into this pandemic. So uh, kind of want to get in here. What are some, what is like the one thing that you found most inspirational during all of this? Sure. And my, my public speaking training in high school is going to come in here. So forgive me, Eric, if I get <laughs> verbose on you. <laughs> I think something that's inspired me has just been the inner organization collaboration and watching it happen in real time. So, you know, a year ago, probably a little less than a year ago, scientists, you know, decided to sit down and say, let's let's form a, a solution to this pandemic. Then they decided to create something. It worked. They sent it off to ma- sites to mass produce it. Then it was federally allocated. Then the federal allocation went to state allocation. State allocation went to healthcare providers such as pharmacies and pharmacists. And then this cardboard box filled with little vials of hope show up at a pharmacy 
goes into an injection and into someone's arm. And I mean, that's just that's just a labor of love that so many people along the line have been part of. And then, you know, isn't it poetic justice that as pharmacists, we're the unit that was called up to give that final blow against the COVID pandemic? That's amazing. I think that's what inspires me to continue on in the fight against the COVID-19 vaccine. So many people, or the COVID-19 pandemic, so that folks get vaccinated. Um, this is what drives so many of us to help. We're bringing, we're bringing healing to the country. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of cool. I always like giving vaccines because I know that when I put that in someone's arm, I'm protecting them against something. And now when it's a pandemic, it's like, okay, we're going to end this plague and I'm going to be help, like the person who helps you end it, like physically right here, at least as much, right. as, as, much as we can. Exactly, exactly. One at a time. One at a time we're healing the, we're healing the country. This is what a calling to have, right? Yeah, and we've seen like independence chains, all the everyone step up, and even people who aren't pharmacists, who are those accessories, whether it be technicians and even some of the leadership district managers, kind of doing extra things, going the extra mile to really kind of make sure that we could be able to give someone that service, to have that service, to to offer it up to them. Uh, we want to keep a little bit of open time here because you had some things you wanted to hit on that are kind of a little bit, maybe not Ohio specific, but just kind of bigger, if you will. What did you want to talk about as far as like just open time when it comes to vaccines and kind of the roles pharmacists play? Sure, Eric, and, and you were going to catch me in a couple of boxes. So again, <laughs> forgiveness is key here. <laughs> but I think uh, since your platform reaches pharmacies across the country, you know, my thought and something I wanted to bring to the table to discuss was the international situation with vaccines. In the week of April the 28th, uh, several countries are hurting and uh, dealing with waves that are far beyond our capacity to even comprehend the number of deaths that are occurring, the number of people who are testing positive for COVID. I think of India, my own home country, where yeah. uh, you know I get phone calls from people telling me how much, how much uh, the hospitals are backlogged. There's an oxygen supply that's completely been used up. In fact, there's now a black market for oxygen tanks in, in the city where I grew up. So there's just there's just a lot of suffering in the entire world. And, and something that we have to remember from a public health standpoint is that in order to get past this pandemic, we have to make sure the entire world has access to the vaccine um, and that the entire world has some sort of solution that maybe our country can help with that. Maybe pharmacists can help push that thought in, in amongst their communities, amongst their legislators to say, we're doing so well in here. Almost 50, well, I think over 50% of the U.S. population have at least one shot in their systems. Yeah. It, How it can is. we replicate that? How can we replicate that elsewhere? What are, what are your thoughts on that? I know I just threw something very international at you, but what are your you thoughts know, on when, that? You when know, when I think of that, um, I'm privileged enough to have some friends who were Actually, I was there. I was. They were mentees to me when they were in college here in Ohio, and they're now mm -hmm. overseas in the middle of a pandemic, and they're working in the military, and they're pharmacists, and kind of. Wow. I obviously don't share a lot with me about it. We talk once in a while since they're basically around the like I think like ten hours ahead of me in time, but uh, <laughs> but you know we I have heard some stories from them, and it's kind of cool to hear what they're doing, and I I really see them kind of modeling what happened in the U.S. and helping roll it out overseas just because of where they're physically located more than anything else. And we've also seen some of that with um, President Biden. I think he allocated AstraZeneca, and I forget where it was, but to other countries uh, to really try and help get that taken care of because, you know, the U.S. hasn't approved it yet. The rest of the world, it's AstraZeneca is one of those ones that's also kind of hit some hurdles and some discussion points with some of their data. But it does seem to be 
fairly effective. So it's one of those things like if we're not going to use it, we should make someone else make sure someone else uses it. And sure. I'm curious as we see increased vaccine hesitancy and we start seeing things like the Pfizer one who's got the crazy storage or Moderna, which isn't quite as crazy, what we're going to do with those if we decide to kind of offload Johnson & Johnson to somewhere else because we have seen other countries like Russia has been a major exporter of vaccine and hasn't been giving it to their people, whereas we took the exact opposite approach. And so I think that's just interesting to see how it's going to work on a international scale, but something that we should be thinking about too, since we are the the richest country in the world, just kind of how we do that. But I mean, pharmacists are everywhere. I know uh, we've heard during the pandemic on even podcasts like RX Radio with Richard Waith, people were calling in from Syria to kind of share what they were seeing, saying there. And so it's one of those things that, you know, pharmacists are a key access point anywhere across the world. What our roles are, what we do might change. The drug names obviously change, but this is one of those things I really (laughs) think that, you know, at, because we are so trusted in many communities, now I know we always remember those bad patients who come in yelling at us, but the general majority do trust us and what we say. I think having that role in vaccine hesitancy in public health is huge. And I know where I work, there's tons of vaccine hesitancy. And just it, there's a large Puerto Rican demographic there, and a lot of them are very hesitant to get it. And I've had a lot of discussions with them. And a lot of times when I sit down and I give someone their vaccine, they've put that trust in me. They see it's not so bad. And I'll spend way too much time talking with them, trying to kind of break down the barrier and give them the talking points so they can go in their community and do it because I don't speak Spanish fluently. I can barely get through a transaction speaking Spanish, but they can go and talk to them at their level, not just of understanding, but like in their own language that helps kind of get them to come in. And we've seen a few people where they just keep rolling in family members and we have called them and been like, hey, we have an extra dose. You got anyone? And then they bring someone in. We're like, sweet. All right, thank you. And it helps us. It helps them. It helps everybody. So I think that's one of the things that... Obviously, I work in Ohio, but I have an international base, basically, because it's not like your typical what you think of with the U.S. population. And once we see them start getting traction, I think that just kind of models or shows what we should be modeling internationally. To to your point, especially in a country like India, which is a major exporter of vaccines and is going through the absolute worst of it we've ever seen right now. And we know it's underreported, too. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Okay, well, we're going to keep this a little bit short, but I'm going to ask some different questions to you. Usually I ask two questions to everybody, but since we're focusing on COVID here and you have some awesome insight into this, I'm going to give you a wand and make you COVID czar for the U.S. What would you have done differently from the start and why? Sure, that's a, that's a weighty question if you think back <laughs> to when things started shutting down in March of last year. Unfortunately, things got pretty wild pretty quickly and I won't go into details again because that's also another favorite soapbox of mine and you've been just handing all the soapboxes to me one at a time so <laughs> <laughs> I think if I could do something differently I think I would think about wh- what communications looks like in the landscape of the United States today and uh, considering the fact that folks don't usually get their information now from a website or from a news channel most of the things have moved into social media yep. and so If I had that wand, I would have said, okay, CDC, FDA, other entities like that that are trusted. Have you thought about opening a a TikTok account? (laughs) Have you thought about being more uh, available on Twitter? I know that seems, I I laughed too, because I thought, well, can you imagine a CDC official being on TikTok? That would be hilarious. But (laughs) again, a large number of our community are on those websites are on those social media portals. So, you know, you have to get to the communities where they are and where they exist and where they communicate with others. 
And I know that obviously over time, things have changed. There are healthcare providers on different platforms trying to share evidence-based information. But I think if on day one, we had jumped the gun and said, okay, we have the, the world's best communicators or communication strategists out there. Let's bring them into a room and say, look, this is a pandemic. We need to make sure the right information goes out. Let's do it on all platforms available. Yeah. Um, so that would be my thought. You know, I, I've thought that numerous times, which obviously, you know, I've taken to social media to try and advocate to make sure people have the correct information, which has been huge, especially now is now not so much as it was early in the pandemic, but still, I would love to see somebody with like Tony Fauci just kind of go live on like Facebook and just let the comments roll in and see what he says to people. He's, he's a pretty good communicator. Obviously some people have some, some sticking points here, there are things he said. I think it's all justifiable for any given reason, but it's one of those things that, like you said, getting people out there so they can actually directly ask him a question and, or people like him a question so that it can be answered because we we all know those people who it's your cousin or your uncle who's, you know, thinks his cell phone's going to get better reception now because of COVID or something crazy. And, yeah. and so, yeah, I think that communication is huge. And man, it, so many times that just breaks down to, they trust who they know and they know those people through social media. And since they couldn't leave the house, they were going with that because that's what they had access to and they knew those people. So I think that that's a good talking point you have there about, I, I'm not a, on TikTok really. I don't, I'm probably a little bit old for it, but at the same point, I think that that's a good call out of just something like that that can really reach into people and kind of show them and help educate them at the same time. Exactly. And maybe Eric, that's, that's your next move. Like take the <laughs> political pharmacist to TikTok. Let's see what you do. <laughs> yeah. You know, with all those TikTok dances, I'm a, I'm probably not the best dancer. Maybe I'll get my uh, 15 month old daughter on there and she'll, she'll be at least get some likes and people to follow. You'll her. have the cuteness factor. <laughs> You'll have the cuteness factor. I'm telling you, that's your next campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll see how that goes. I have to get the wife stamp of approval as always. But uh, um, when it comes to messaging, I've heard uh, Dr. Frank North was talking about this with some of the, like the African American community and the messaging with it. What was one thing that you would have done differently to kind of improve confidence and uptake of something like a vaccine? Yeah. And that, again, is a question as we look back, we think, oh, we could have done this or that better. I think something that could have been worked on early is, yes, the vaccines were approved towards the end of the year, but we knew the vaccines were coming, regardless of what the time was. Could we not have used that time to educate people on vaccines? Could we not have used that time to reach out to, from a grassroots level, to community leaders from minority populations to say, hey, this is coming, you're trusted, let's work together. Now, of course, there are things that we learned as we moved over time. We learned about some of those inequalities to access. We learned about social determinants of health that may not, may have increased or decreased certain levels of vaccination across the state. But with the information we have from previous public health efforts, from previous movements, similar to a vaccine drive like the one we're in right now, we could have been more strategic. We could have been more strategic with messaging before anybody, any company had a vaccine authorized. That would be that would be my take for looking back from where we are today. Yeah, you know, one person again, a little Ohio centric here today. Sorry, folks, but uh, I saw I remember Senator Rob Portman enrolled in one of the vaccine trials, um, not super early on, but he didn't enroll in it. And I thought that was a good messaging point. And some people might say, yeah, he's getting access or possibly getting access to it earlier than other people. But I thought it was really credible when you see somebody who's obviously like one of a hundred senators in the U.S. say, you know what, I'm going to put my faith in the medicine here and put myself on the line so that people who trust me can trust this. And even if you don't agree with me, you know that I stuck my neck out here for you to try and help put this to the end. And I didn't have to do that. And I thought that was really cool to see 
some of the elected officials do things like that to really kind of help break that messaging wall down, if you could. Agreed. And in the world of influencers, and I hate that I'm even seeing that, but <laughs> in the world of influencers, if people know that they have some sort of sway on a community to use for positive good, to use for a public health initiative like this one, I think we, we could continue, even today, even today we can continue to have these people move and shake some of other folks' thoughts on the vaccine and their willingness to get it. Yeah. And for some reason, my mind always goes back. There was a Russian scientist who actually had himself injected at the time they started animal trials. He was so confident in it. And, that, and that's really putting it out there. If you're going that far with it, I don't know if I'd expect anyone in the U.S. to do that. But I thought that was one one major messaging way. You're like, OK, well, this guy's going to work on it. He trusted this much. I don't think anyone else is going to question him at this point. So. I thought that was right. Really the, cool. ph- the pharmacist, the pharmacist to me cringes at that the danger that he put himself <laughs> in. But hey, the the technology worked, and here we are. Most of us, at least in the healthcare world, are vaccinated. So hooray for that! <laughs> yeah, it's really putting your money where your mouth is. But uh, exactly, hey, Doctor Shaw Ojeda, thanks again for coming on. Uh, and I really appreciate having this kind of open discussion about how the vaccine from start to where we are now kind of made it into the arms of everybody around the country, but specifically Ohio. Absolutely. It's been a privilege to be on the podcast, probably something on my fellowship bucket list. So thank you. you. Um, And thank you also again to the profession for all your sacrifice for bringing healing through the vaccine to all of our community community members. Yeah. As always, folks, when it comes to things like this, if you can share it to get truthful and insightful information out on COVID, I highly encourage it. Uh, Whether some people fully understand it's a whole different story, but obviously we have talked about enough things here. If they start digging into it, they can find the truth pretty easily as well. So might have a few links in the show notes for things like that that we referenced on here. But hey, listeners, we had a delay uh, getting this episode out because of some of the news that broke in Ohio. But one of the other things that our governor is doing now is a basically a lottery for people who get the vaccine that to kind of encourage people as one last ditch effort to get this vaccine before they kind of pull back at some of these restrictions to kind of follow what the CDC has put out there. So it's kind of crazy how far we've come in this pandemic, but it just kind of shows what we're trying to do to get those last uh, couple inches into someone's arm for those people who are right on the fence. So just something you guys can look at. We'll put a link in the show notes to it if you want to see or encourage your governors to do the same thing. But just really goes to show what uh, kind of leadership looks like in the pandemic for every angle, trying every theory out there, even something like as crazy as putting a lottery out there to kind of help encourage people on the fence with a big prize money to really go and get it. Because we've seen that with some of the smaller things that doesn't work, you know, 100 bucks here, tax credit there doesn't always work. But a million dollars really does kind of drive people to the pharmacies, if you will, to get their shots. But just one of the things we want to cover to make sure that we had for full completeness since that did change from the time I recorded this to the time I was going to release it. So as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.